say, this is the first time that I have ever spoken in a room with a, uh, a, a live fire. And I kind of like the element of danger here. Feels good. Okay. We are talking about justification this weekend. That is a familiar word to some of you. That is not a familiar word to others of you. And that's okay. That's what we're here for. So the classic sort of tried and true method of talking about justification is to begin with a Martin Luther quote. He said, justification is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Or we might start by giving the very full and very rich and somewhat overwhelming definition from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, that is given to us and received by faith alone. But that's not really where I want to start. Okay. I want to start by telling you something about me. Okay, That's probably why you're here. Find out about me. Kidding. Um, I want to sort of work our way into this feast some, with like some hors d'oeuvres and some appetizers, something along those lines. And so the thing about me is this, that if you want to see me as stressed as I can possibly be without being in any actual physical danger then put me in front of a scene in which the walls are closing in. These are terrible. Um, There's a couple different scenes like this, okay? There's one in, Harrison Ford seems to be in all of them. I don't know, I guess this is like a specialty of his. So there's a scene in Indiana Jones, for instance, where the walls are moving, they're squeezing him. There's a scene in one of the Star Wars movies where Han Solo and Luke and Leia and Chewbacca are caught in a trash compactor. I don't even like thinking about it. When I think about it, when I see these things, my whole body is just wound up like a spring and there's beads of sweat on my forehead and I'm losing my hair. So there's a lot of real estate for the sweat up here, I can tell you. So I don't really think I'm claustrophobic. I don't mind walls normally, but when they start moving, that's when I catch a bad case of the claustrophobes. So this idea of being squeezed between two inexorably moving things, jaws snapping shut or a vice being tightened, that's what makes me sweat. But that idea is actually a good analogy for the position that the Bible puts us in without Jesus Christ. And so if we're ever going to understand justification, if... um, Uh, Luther quotes or catechism definitions are going to like reach us and stir us and be intelligible to our hearts, then we have to begin with the knowledge that without Jesus, we are being squeezed by two realities. First, by sin, which for humans like us is both universal, right? It's in all of us and, and it is also personal. It's with each one of us. And second, by God's judgment, which is inescapable. Those are the jaws of the vice. But in these movie scenes, I have noticed there's always a sort of sort of break glass in case of emergency, like button or lever, something along those lines where where the heroes can be rescued from being crushed. And our situation is actually... No different, except in Christianity, that thing, that mechanism 
is a person. It's Jesus Christ who, Isaiah tells us, was crushed for our iniquities. It's Jesus Christ, the Bible says, who in our emergency was broken for us. But he will not mean anything to us until we feel the squeeze of sin and judgment on a collision course. That's the picture that the Bible gives us of the human condition. And so that's our goal this morning. We're going to look at sin. We're going to look at the sentence that God hands down for it. And finally, to look at the Savior who meets us in the squeeze. So sin, sentence, and Savior. And to help us, we're going to look at Matthew 5, verses 48, uh, excuse me, 43 to 48. These are words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> So let's hear God's word to us this morning. I hope you can hear it because I have given up on this microphone, whatever's happening over here. Um, all right, let's hear God's word. Matthew five forty-three to 48. This is Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us, then we'll look at our first part, sin. Let's pray. Father, uh, we know that your word never goes out and returns to you empty. We know that it always accomplishes your purposes. We pray that that would be true this morning in our hearts. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So... Early in Victor Hugo's classic, Les Miserables, the main character, I'm talking about the book, by the way, not uh, the uh, production, the play. The main character, Jean Valjean, has just been released after 19 years in prison. He had stolen bread to feed his sister's starving children. That's how he ended up there. But he's free now. Only he doesn't know what to do with that freedom, and he's saddled with this this document that he has to carry everywhere with him that identifies him as a convict. It's a yellow passport. And because of the passport, he cannot find anywhere to stay, let alone anywhere to work. I just put this on my face. Let's go. All right, now we're talking. Okay, how does it look? Does it look cool? (laughs) Okay, excellent. So finally, with nowhere else to turn, he is taken in by this kindly old priest, Bishop Muriel, and he's given supper and a bed. And you would think that this would sort of like, like calm his spirit, right? But instead, Jean Valjean wakes up in the night totally distraught. It says... Many thoughts came to him, but one kept reappearing, driving out all the others. That thought was this. He had noticed the silver place settings and the large spoon that had been on the table. Those six silver sets obsessed him. There they were, 
a few steps away. A few steps away. I don't know if, if you know what that kind of situation feels like. Sometimes I think I've, I live in a, a situation like this. It's the feeling, Scripture talks about, of sin crouching at your door, almost as if it's alive and coming for you. So we'll define sin a little better later on. But for now, it's important to see that this is not really about silver. It's not really about a thing. It's not even about theft, actually. What Jean Valjean really wants is what he can do with the silver, or rather what that silver can do for him. It says, there were solid old silver. With the big serving spoon, they would bring at least 200 francs, double what he made in 19 years labor. True, he would have got more if the government had not robbed him. So what's happening here is more complex than just good and bad, right? Uh, This is how subtle, how tricksy sin is. It has these like certain powers of reasoning. And so Jean Valjean is convincing himself as he thinks of all that silver that he deserves it. His stealing of the bread to feed his sister's children, his original crime, wasn't that a noble crime? And hadn't he earned far more than the silver was worth after 19 years of hard labor? So Jean Valjean's thoughts are a lot like our own. And there's a beautiful confession of sin in the old Book of Common Prayer that talks about, it talks about dissembling and cloaking our sins. Dissembling, in other words, um, disguising or, or misleading, and then cloaking or, or hiding our bad intentions even from ourselves. Don't we deserve that good grade, right? Don't we uh, deserve the boyfriend or girlfriend that we want, however we get it? Don't we deserve sexual satisfaction or, or joy or peace or comfort? And if you ever have those conversations in your own mind where you're sort of like defending yourself against an, an unknown <laughs> accuser, that's a good example. Dissembling and cloaking. What would I say? How would I defend myself if somebody came at me about this? See, if we're honest with ourselves, then sin is not just at the door, right? It's, it's already in the house. There's, a, there's an old scary movie somewhere uh, where it's like the babysitter keeps getting the phone calls from the bad guy. And eventually she finds out the calls are coming from inside the house. That's our situation. It really, it's worse than that. Sin isn't just inside the house. Sin is inside of us. And so sometimes it's it's actually more subtle than just the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. The question is, what's behind what you want? What do you feel like you deserve? And so those are good questions, I think. But the problem is that those questions are all about you. And that's sort of where Jean Valjean is right now at this point. He's at the center of his own world. He is, he is the sun in his own solar system that, that everything else is revolving around. And to give him a little bit of a break, you know, like us, he, it's complicated because he also has to deal with other people's sin against him. Or in this situation, he has to deal with the repercussions of like a, a much larger broken system of, of justice that he got caught up in. 
But if we really want to like get at sin straight and, and like look it in the, in the face, if, if we really want to take its measure, then there's actually an even better question to ask. It's the one that Jesus is getting at in Matthew 5. Instead of what do you want, the question is, what does God want from me? And in some ways, really, your whole life is an answer to that question. What does God want from me? It really, you know, you can avoid that question. You can avoid it pretty easily. If you don't think about it too hard, you can say, you know, God wants me to be a good person. Uh, God wants me to try my best. God wants me to do more good things than bad things. But the moment that you really look at Matthew 548, that whole project just comes crashing down because Jesus puts it so clearly. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so right away, sin tries to reason with us, dissembling and cloaking, right? Uh, in, In fact, that's in some ways how sin entered the world in the first place, because in the garden, the serpent asked Eve, he said, did God really say, did God really say, and we might be tempted here to ask something similar. Did Jesus really say that we have to be perfect? I mean, that sounds a little much. It sounds like hyperbole. With all you have to deal with, God still wants you to be perfect? Just doesn't seem fair. But speaking of Genesis, we're in Genesis right now in my RUF. And so it's, um, uh, it's, it's fresh on my mind. Genesis also tells us that because God created us, he can require whatever he wants from us. That we are the clay and he is the potter. That he is our owner operator and, and uh, can require whatever he wishes. And so I actually think it's helpful to turn the whole equation around and to sort of look at it, uh, to think about it and look at it through the other end. In other words, we look at Matthew 548 and we say, how could God require us to be perfect? But God looks at us and says, how can I not? See, God requires what he requires by virtue of who he is. And one thing that the Bible makes totally clear is that he is holy. He's holy. Uh, Richard Lentz says that holiness refers to the absolute moral purity of God and the absolute moral distance between God and his creatures. And so in Isaiah 6.3, one of the important verses in the Old Testament, we read that God is holy, holy, holy. It's a, like a formula. It's this, this threefold intensifier. It's the only place that we see this kind of literary device in, in all of the Bible. It's telling us that God is, is holy, 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 like utterly, exquisitely, just mind-bendingly holy. But in that, it also means that he is other. See, holiness carries with it this idea of being, of being set apart. Okay, sort of like that feeling you get in the presence of um, a celebrity or a great authority, like tree. You're just like, this guy's different. It's saying God is different. He is operating on a different plane than you are. And that is simply who God is. 
that his otherness is, is multiplied and intensified by his perfection of being and wisdom and power and justice and holiness. And that is why God requires perfection of those that he made in his image so that they could glorify and enjoy him forever. And that is why the Bible holds us to account for uh, both the active and passive parts of sin, for the bad things that we do and the good things that we leave undone. And so if we want a good definition of sin, a short kind of punchy one, then, then John gives us one in Scripture. He says, sin is lawlessness. But also we tend to think of a law as like as a document somewhere that somebody created. God's law is different. It is connected to his, his character. It's not made up. It's not arbitrary. It's a function of who he is. So a couple years ago, um, a completely insane documentary came out. Some of you may have seen it. It's called Free Solo. Okay. I really, I take back everything that I said about being stressed about the walls closing in scenes because this documentary was a a thousand times worse. If you saw it, you know what I'm talking about. It's uh, in this documentary, Alex Honnold, this climber, is free soloing. That means climbing without a rope. The uh, 3,000 foot rock wall in Yosemite called El Capitan. So rarely, I think, do we get to see so tangibly exactly what perfection requires. Perfection looks like a, a man climbing a seemingly impossible rock face with no rope. He has to be perfect. Every move, every foothold, every moment, he has to be perfect. And you might say, sorry, I'm going to spoil the movie for you, but... You might say, yeah, he did it. He, he climbed El Capitan. He free soloed it. And that's true. But there is another moment in that movie that really made me pause. And, it, and I, I think it should make you pause. I think it should make you consider this, the futility of these sort of perfection projects. Alex Honnold may have been perfect on that climb that day. But in the movie, there's another climber, a friend of his named Tommy Caldwell, who says at one point, he says, everybody who has made uh, soloing a big part of their lives is dead now. It's like he's saying, you know, it it may have worked today, but it's not going to work forever. Perfection is too high of a bar. And even those who succeed for a time eventually fall to their deaths. And there's a sense in which we can say the same thing about our situation. That for us, for humans, when perfection is required, only death can result. Without Jesus, things may have worked out for you on some level today or this week, but it cannot last. And thus the Bible says, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.12, sin came into the world and death through sin. In other words, everybody who has made being good enough for God a big part of their lives is dead now. We simply cannot meet God's standard. And that leads us to our second, shorter, don't worry, point. The sentence. 
Okay, God's judgment, the other side of, of the vice, if you will, is rooted in his character, his law, his holiness, the holiness that we have talked about. He cannot look on sin. He cannot look on injustice and rebellion and evil and, and leave it unpunished. And so J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says, the basic fact is that the God who made us intends to take account of us, measuring us by his own standards. And from his imminent inquisition, nothing can shield us. Just like that, sin gets the better of Jean Valjean. It says he put on his cap. Then he moved quickly along the bed without looking at the bishop, straight to the cupboard. He raised the drill to force the lock. The key was in it. He opened it. The first thing he saw was the basket of silverware. He took it, crossed the room hastily, heedless of noise, reached the door, entered the oratory, took his stick, stepped outside, put the silver in his knapsack, threw away the basket, ran across the garden, leapt over the wall like a tiger, and escaped. Having opened the door to sin, this crouching animal, Jean Valjean, in some sense, becomes an animal. The way he, he's running and leaping, it says, like a tiger. And just so, sin often carries with it its own consequences here on earth. But those are nothing really compared to the eternal ones. And we really don't like thinking about this stuff, right? We don't even like the word judgment. Uh, we've made that a bad word, like a pejorative. When in reality, judgment is a neutral word, right? It, it can be innocent or condemned. And so sure enough, Jean Valjean gets caught. And he's, he's found by the, the gendarmes, the um, uh, French police. They drag him back to the bishop's house, to the scene of the crime. And scripture describes something somewhat similar for us. That, that we will face the music. It calls it the day of the Lord. Sometimes just that day. It's the day when Jesus will judge the world when all that is hidden will be revealed. Um, my kids watch a show called Daniel Tiger. Some of you may have watched it when you were young. Okay, and so you know, he sings these catchy little songs to help kids kind of process the world in their feelings. One of my personal favorites is when you have to go potty, stop and go right away. We use that one a lot. Um, st- continues to be good advice. But there's another one, more apropos, uh, where Daniel Tiger sings. He says, sometimes you feel two feelings at the same time, and that's okay. And that is great counseling. And I, honestly, the day of the Lord makes me think of that because on some level, we, we want justice. We want the bad guys to go to jail. We want lies to be wiped out by truth. We want fear and anxiety and injustice and all the ugliness and brokenness of this world to be set right. But then we realize if God is going to deal with all of that out there, then he has to deal with uh, the same thing with sin in here. And so if the wages of sin is death, the sentence is condemnation. The gavel of the judge, capital J, the, the God of all justice falls. And in our sin, we are condemned. The door opens. 
A strange, fierce group appeared on the threshold. Three men were holding a fourth by the collar. The three men were gendarmes. The fourth, Jean Valjean. He murmured something. Silence, said a gendarme. It is his lordship, the bishop. Jean Valjean, this is the day, okay? It's the reckoning. The silver was in his possession. He is condemned. The bishop had approached as quickly as his great age permitted. Ah, there you are, he said, looking at Jean Valjean. I'm glad to see you. But I gave you the candlesticks too, which are silver like the rest and would bring 200 francs. Why don't you take them along with your cutlery? He went to the mantelpiece, took the two candlesticks and handed them to Jean Valjean, who was trembling all over. Now, said the bishop, go in peace. And when you come again, you needn't come through the garden. You can always come to the front door. Sin, sentence, savior. At the moment of condemnation, Jean Valjean is justified. And just like this, in Jesus, our condemnation is reversed. Second Corinthians 521 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is justification? It's an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sin. That's the first part, but it's only the first part. It's a courtroom scenario, okay, where we, the the justly condemned and, and God, the judge, are there and the gavel falls, but we are declared not guilty. Why? How? Because of Jesus on the cross, because he paid our debt there. The judge takes our place as the criminal and receives our punishment of death. But that is only the first part. It does not stop there. Justification means he pardons all our sin and and accepts us as righteous only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. In Jesus, God takes our punishment of death and and gives us the silver and with it new life. That's called grace. Getting what you do not deserve, what you did not earn, what is not yours. And just like God, you can see the bishop I must return Jean Valjean's humanity to him. He doesn't need to prowl the garden like an animal. He can come in the front door. There's shades of the, the father and the, the parable of the prodigal son here. Our pastor at Trinity in Fort Worth, Brian Davis, says, um, he says this, after every confession uh, of sin at every service, or after the assurance, I should say, He says, in Christ, your sins are forgiven, your shame has been covered, and your dignity as a person has been restored. That is what is happening in justification. That you can now come in the front door and be welcomed. When we were in the squeeze, our sin colliding with God's judgment, when we were dead in our sin, God takes it on himself, reverses the condemnation, and says, take the candlesticks too. 
The silver is yours. Almost even better than that. I'm glad to see you. The door is open. All the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. The door open and welcome. And with it, a new life. And one day, an eternal life. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again for your goodness uh, and for this word of goodness, the hard word that Jesus calls us to perfection, that that is your standard. Um, But we know that in justification, you meet us and you give all that is yours so that we can be made right and so that we can be restored, so that our shame can be covered and our dignity as a person can be renewed. So we pray that we would understand that this morning, that that would would play in our hearts this weekend. And we pray that you would do all that for your glory. And in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.